This is Questions of Courage, a podcast from the youth section at the Goetheanum, hosted by Nathaniel Williams. Welcome to Questions of Courage. I'd like to talk about the intersection of spirituality and consumerism today. This is something that will have particular resonance, I think, for a lot of young people who are in the United States, but I'm sure it'll also have resonances for people all over the world in different contexts. And it's a very interesting exploration. When we look at modern consumerism and some of the spiritual attitudes towards human nature um, that have developed in the last 60, 70 years in a kind of popular way, because Exploring it, it's possible to understand something about the characteristics of those spiritual orientations in a positive way um, by kind of discerning them more clearly. But it also can help us, I think, to recognize places where orientations that are very good in or can be very justified when they're directed in one area can become very destructive when they're directed in another area. And right off the bat, I'd like to start by um, quoting a well-known climate activist uh, from the United States named Bill McKibben. And some years ago, he was reflecting on some of the kind of popular attitudes that he was more and more familiar with through his work and um, as a conservationist, but also climate activist. And he writes, people, especially the subspecies that inhabits the Western world, and especially the troop of them that has grown up on the eastern edge of North America, find themselves badly out of balance, operating under the influence of a spell, an intoxication with ourselves. It's an intoxication that will likely grow deeper as the next few decades progress. Our unthinking consumption of resources has now reached the point where we are changing the global temperature and with it the speed of the wind, the size of storms, and the pace of the seasons. When we see the formerly natural world, we see ourselves. You know, obviously what Bill McKibben is referring to here will ring true as a concern, and it's not necessarily that we want to direct this current concern outward in a critical way, but we can feel it for ourselves. We can feel concerned that we might feel disconnected from just the normal earthly context of, of our shared bioregions and ecological situations. And that we feel like kind of popular culture, or even culture in general, in a way isn't serving us to become more connected with this kind of natural context that Bill McKibben is uh, calling the natural world. And I, when I, what I want to explore today is related to um, a cultural attitude and an inner orientation that really came to the fore with a very widespread influence in the 1960s. And um, as I've mentioned in other episodes, this uh, can be seen very clearly in the rights revolution um, and it, it, it was kind of characterized by a different way of orienting and appreciating human encounter and the human being altogether. 
But before I talk about the 1960s, I'd like to share a particularly powerful quote from Rudolf Steiner, which predated it by four or five decades. And he's writing about how it is that we feel like we come into contact with the spiritual dimension of the human constitution. And he writes, to a certain extent, when regarding a picture, we look through what the senses perceive to its spiritual content. And so it is also in the observation of the human being. If we truly understand the human being in the light of natural law, we do not feel that these laws bring us into contact with the real person, but only with that through which they are revealed. Now, this way of expressing something that became very popular in the 1960s might not be ringing a lot of bells for you, but I could put it in a different way. And that is that for many, many people today, um, it feels wrong to judge people based on um, characteristics, outer characteristics, but also other norms, perhaps. And it feels like when you do so, you actually are not able to meet the living being of the person that you're trying to have an encounter with. So for instance, uh, if you look at someone because they're a man or a woman, or because of a particular ethnicity or a color of their skin, or if you judge them simply because of certain sexual preferences. And all of these things today, many people feel, lead them away from being able actually to meet who a person is. Now, all of those characterizations, those, those parts of us, um, are then kind of viewed almost like color that are used to make a picture. And it's through how the colors are used that we can come to an encounter with who the person is. We can't judge them through outer characteristics or generalizations and norms. But instead, we kind of feel like through all of those, we have to look as if we're looking at a work of art and then be receptive for the originality, for the individuality of a person. So hopefully that's now ringing more bells. And I'd like to read this quote from Rudolf Steiner again. To a certain extent, when regarding a picture, we look through what the senses perceive to its spiritual content. And so it is also in the observation of the human being. If we truly understand the human being in the light of natural law, we do not feel that these laws bring us into contact with the real person, but only with that through which they are revealed. Now, this orientation you can trace back much earlier than Rudolf Steiner. In the United States, you can easily find it uh, in the Transcendentalist Movement, the works of Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, but you can also find it in Europe in the work of Friedrich Schiller and many others. And this is um, what one of the most well-known philosophers in the English-speaking language, who is Charles Taylor, refers to as expressivism. And he describes it as expressivism, quote, was the basis for a new and fuller individuation, 
And, when we, and then that's the end of that quote, but a little further on he writes, this entails, quote, that each one of us has an original path which we ought to tread. They lay the obligation on each of us to live up to our originality. And in another section, he writes that perhaps this came to its culmination quote, with the flower generation of the 1960s. And I'm just sharing those different uh, quotes to point towards this now quite prevalent and widespread attitude and even belief that through looking at people in a pictorial way, through actually suspending kind of natural law in Rudolf Steiner's language or the laws of that we might know through natural history or any other um, general laws, and then looking at a person with an eye for an expression of individuality that they bring to all of that through their creativity, this attitude is very widespread in certain parts of the world, certainly in the United States. And now I'd like to kind of to underline what I feel like is at stake here. I'd like to introduce a kind of odd expression, but this attitude, I think you could call, and I mean this in a descriptive way. I don't mean it in a metaphysical way or a transcendental way where you're talking about some other area of experience. But when we do this, and this doesn't happen, this kind of conviction doesn't land in every encounter, of course, in our daily lives. But I'm sure many people listening are thinking of the, this quality of encounter and how it has shown up for them. When we have that, we have an experience that the human being is a living spirit picture. Now, that may be an odd thing to say in describing a human being, but I think that it really suits this particular way of experiencing the human being. When we turn a person, when we seek in an encounter to kind of have an orientation, a pictorial orientation towards another person and be receptive towards what can emerge from them that's original and individual, that we're orienting towards one another as living spirit pictures or living spirit images. Now, many, many people, because of the quality and the impact of this kind of an orientation, feel it's deeply justified. They make it a cornerstone of um, their beliefs about how society should be structured. But I think one thing that's really important now is to ask ourselves if we're not really clear about this orientation and, it, and we, we um, unconsciously spread it out in other areas of collective life, of societal life, how it can become destructive. Just as an example, if we take Rudolf Steiner's expression that when we meet other people, we, in order to really have the experience that we have an encounter, we have to suspend natural law. Well, if we were to suspend, for instance, natural law in relationship to how we do business on the earth and to 
how we consume things, how we distribute things, how we um, make waste of things or get rid of things, um, you can immediately feel how there's a dissonance that emerges. And this is really important for trying to see how an attitude which is really justified in one area can be destructive in another. And I think the attitude which I'm calling approaching the human being as a living spirit image becomes destructive when we unconsciously or through lack of discernment spread it out, for instance, in our marketplaces, through advertising, in the way that we think about production, distribution, and consumption, so that buying things and um, selling things is where we somehow then begin to seek this experience of individuation. Um, I'm sure that all of you can easily think of advertisements where this uh, comes to the fore. I mean, just earlier today, I was looking at even some small town ads um, and, you know, you find a real estate broker who has a collection of unique properties or a building materials company that shares your passion. Um, you even find uh, ice cream flavors that are called enlightenment um, or a cola that um, is advertised with the tagline, you are the spark. And in all of these things, if I, I, I want to put out there as something to live with and to observe, it's like this this powerful attitude that has emerged through a way of meeting each other and thinking about human nature is kind of bleeding into advertising, sometimes through really conscious strategy in order to turn a profit, and sometimes quite unconsciously, and where we're seeking the spiritual experience through material consumption and brands and um, various ways of participating in, in the economy. Now, this is something that has been um, focused on in different ways. You know, if you look at the, the famous uh, magazine Adbusters, that um, the issues that were published leading up to the Occupy Wall Street protests in the United States, um, the kind of imaginations and attitudes that were shaping advertising were just um, the core focus of that effort. I think there's a deep feeling that in how we are thinking and imagining our economy, there's something really destructive at play. And I think that one part of this is a challenge to recognize the rightful place of pictorial apprehension in collective life and society, which is, I think, cultural in nature, has to do with human encounters, with cultural exchange, and with discourse, and places where that can actually lead to a blindness. There was an influential economist uh, by the name of Schumacher who wrote a book called Small is Beautiful. And at one, in one part of this book, 
he writes that this the pursuit of kind of self-realization through material means leads to a kind of destruction because it's a seeking out of something which can be achieved spiritually but cannot be achieved materially. And he writes, quote, Such a life necessarily sets man against man and nation against nation because man's needs are infinite and infinitude can be achieved only in the spiritual realm, never in the material. Assuredly, man assuredly needs to rise above this humdrum world and wisdom shows the way to do it. Now, the characteristic difference in um, having spiritual encounters, which is uh, we, we have just through quali quality encounters with one another in the way that I've just discussed, but we also can think about artwork and how a work of art, whether it be a piece of music or a novel or poem or a painting, it isn't something that's consumed. We can think about the ways that great works of art have shaped millions, hundreds of millions of people, and yet they're like inexhaustible sources of trans spiritual transformative power. Um, and you can think of some of the most famous works of visual art, paintings or architecture, and how their meaning isn't really in consumption, but more in encounter. And in cultural exchange, in spiritual exchange, this is really a totally appropriate attitude, namely a pictorial orientation towards the spirit. And in some ways we can say it is meaningful for the earth, but I'm not going to go into that today. But instead to say, if we look at an object on the earth and one person consumes it, another person can't consume it. That in economics, this is sometimes referred to as the difference between a rivalrous good and a non-rivalrous good. So for instance, something which can be openly shared without being exhausted, like an idea, like a work of art, and in some ways, like an encounter with another person or even a culture. But if you compare that, for instance, to the clean water reserves in a certain area, or if you compare it with um, the, the, the quality topsoil in a certain valley, those are limited. And if we return now to the quote that we opened with from Bill McKibben, one thing that you can make out in this, when he closes, he says, quote, Our unthinking consumption of resources has now reached the point where we are changing the global temperature, and with it the speed of the wind, the size of storms, the pace of seasons. And then he closes, When we see the formerly natural world, we see ourselves. And one way that I'm presenting that we could understand that is that when we see the natural world, we are 
actually seeing in this kind of consumerist culture a misplaced image of ourselves. One that blurs us to the natural world and its unique limits and um, contours, and which also um, can't really lead to the kind of what Schumacher calls infinite growth and um, development that we can um, achieve through uh, a kind of independent and accessible cultural exchange and um, hu just human encounters. Questions of Courage is a project that is supported um, by the communications team at the Goethe Anum, the weekly in Goethe Anum TV. And um, the episodes are offered as kind of contributions to the general um, conversation on matters of meaning for young people who have spiritual interests. And um, we offer them freely, but we also invite everyone who is appreciating them or would like to support uh, the work of the Section for the Spiritual Striving of the Youth to contribute to the Youth Access and Project Fund. Um, the Section and the Goethe Anum as a whole uh, don't have an endowment there from year to year. There's a budgeting process which is very reliant on the enthusiastic support of people from all over the world and foundations and various undertakings and programming as well. And if you give to the Youth Access and Project Fund, you'll, you'll join that circle and um, you'll be able to support young people really from around the world to work in this um, uh, this work of the youth section and youth groups to attend uh, events and programs and also to under to undertake projects. So the uh, the support is truly appreciated and truly needed and you can rest assured that the majority of it will not go towards production costs but towards actual youth work. Um, so with that thank you and until next time.